Please take your Bible with me again and turn to the book of Hebrews this morning to chapter 9 as we enter into a new chapter. Hebrews chapter 9. Like many of you, uh, I enjoy often learning about history through books and documentaries. And recently I was watching a documentary on the flood, the global flood, and the evidence that we see around the planet for a global flood. I enjoy that kind of thing. And in that documentary, they were going around to several different archeological dig sites and showing fossils and other artifacts that had been found. And it got me thinking about the process of unearthing an important archaeological find. Let's say a team of researchers has found the skeleton of a a T-Rex or they've found the, the remains of an ancient building of great significance. In order to unearth those important artifacts and to preserve them, they have to go very, very slowly, really an inch at a time. They map out that entire site. And because of that, that they return to the same work site over and over again, already knowing really the big picture of what's underneath that dirt. They, they know basically what they hope to find there. And yet they come and each day they make progress inch by inch by inch using their small instruments and brushes to brush away small pieces of dirt. And though they already know the big picture, with each inch of dirt that's removed, there's a new excitement because they, they have a better picture of an appreciation of the value of what it is they're uncovering. Well, the author of Hebrews is really doing the same thing for us. We've entered into a section of Hebrews that's admittedly at times a bit repetitive. He comes back to the same themes over and over again, and he's going to continue to do that. Much of the themes that we've introduced in previous chapters come back today, and they'll come back next week and the week after that as we work our way even through chapter 10. But understand that that repetition by the author is not random. It's calculated. It's, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit for us to come back, as it were, to the same dig site over and over again, already understanding the overarching idea of what we're going to find there. And yet as we do the work of removing inch by inch by inch of that dirt, we see the grandeur of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ more and more and more. And so our job is not to grow weary as we come back to some of the same themes, but understand that that repetition is intended. It's by design. And as we look again to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see just another layer of his magnificence and his brilliance and glory. Remember the theme of the book of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. We're in this section from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through 10, verse 18. We're right in the middle of that, starting chapter 9 today. We're looking at Jesus' superior covenant and sacrifice specifically. And we've been unpacking this one great theme over and over again, that Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. Let me just give you the big picture of where we're going today through chapter 10. Today we're going to look at the first half of chapter 9, and the author is going to describe the message of the earthly tabernacle. What was the spiritual message that God was giving us through that tabernacle he gave to Moses in the wilderness? And 
all of this that we've studied so far from chapter eight, verse one, through verse 10 of chapter nine is almost like a volcano building pressure underneath the surface, ready to explode. And in verse 11, that explosion is going to begin as he begins to, in rapid fire, show us how Christ is the the fulfillment of these things, the superior uh, one to the old covenant. But then this will happen all the way to verse 19 of chapter 10. And there the author is going to switch gears and give us another one of those warning passages that we've seen several times in Hebrews and call us to act. But he's building to that. So just stay with the passage as he builds intensity all the way through chapter 10. But today we're going to look at verses 1 to 10 of chapter 9 and return our attention to specific aspects of the old covenant and specifically the tabernacle and how Christ ultimately is the substance and the tabernacle in the old covenant was simply the shadow that pointed to him. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Now, chapter nine as a whole breaks down into five different segments. We're only gonna look at the first two of those segments today, and I'll give them to you up front. The first segment, segment one, we'll call the description of the earthly tabernacle, verses one to five, the description of the earthly tabernacle. Segment number two is the message of the earthly tabernacle, verses six to 10. So we have the description and the message. Now I'm gonna try to set a personal record so far in Hebrews this morning. We're gonna cover 10 verses in one message, Lord willing. But the reason for that is not to hurry up and move on. It's not really personal preference. The reason is because as I studied these 10 verses, it became clear to me that really they function as a unit and to break them apart at any point really would cause us to lose the flow of what the author is trying to say. So we're gonna follow the author's inspired intention this morning and teach all 10 verses together. But with that in mind, let's look at segment number one, the description of the earthly tabernacle, verses one to five. 
Verse one opens, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Now, before we get too far down the road, let me just remind you where we left off last time in chapter eight, chapter eight, verse 13 finishes up when he said, that is when God the Father said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Remember, we were studying Jeremiah 31, that long quote from Jeremiah that announced a new covenant was coming. And the author made the argument because God the Father himself is the one that said a new covenant is coming, that meant the old covenant was obsolete and was ready to pass away. This leads the author now this week in chapter nine to dive deeper into the point of the symbolism of the tabernacle specifically under the old covenant. What was God trying to communicate to us through the old tabernacle? Remember, worship under the old covenant centered in one location. It centered in the tabernacle initially, and by the tabernacle, I mean the one God gave to Moses in the wilderness that they would move around. That tabernacle ultimately would be replaced by the temple under the reign of Solomon, but even that uh, temple was built after the pattern of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle here sets the pattern for old covenant worship. What was happening? What was the importance of this? And he says here, for there was a tabernacle prepared, verse two. A tabernacle was prepared. Again, the tabernacle in the wilderness. This would be the place in which God would manifest his presence on earth at that time under the old covenant. This was the place, if you wanted to get close to God, you had to go to this place. It was the closest you could get to the physical manifestation of his presence. Remember, the original audience here in Hebrews is likely a group of Jewish Christians primarily. So they don't really need anyone to tell them about the tabernacle. They don't need anyone to tell them about the pieces within the tabernacle. They would have understood that very, very well. And that's why what we have here in the first five verses is a high level overview. This is not an in-depth study of the tabernacle. It's not meant to be an in-depth study of the tabernacle. That's why we're not really going to, to camp here very long. It's because the author makes it clear that that's not his purpose. His purpose is not to get caught up on each one of the elements individually, but to look at the system as a whole. And we know that because skipping down to verse five, look at verse five in chapter nine. He ends by saying, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's another way of saying my point is not to get lost in the weeds of the tabernacle. And so we're gonna follow his lead here. We're gonna look at these elements of the tabernacle that he brings up, but we're not gonna spend nearly as much time as we could if we were doing an exhaustive study of the tabernacle at this time. Also, you, you may have gotten an email this week. I, I, we sent out an email with a video clip. Hopefully you got that just to show a visual of the tabernacle. If you didn't get that, let us know, but it'll help you have a mental picture as we walk through uh, this together. Now in our five verses here, what he's doing is breaking the tabernacle into its two rooms. There was the outer tabernacle, he'll call it, and the inner tabernacle. They're all covered by the same tent. Really, it's one tabernacle, but for the sake of his argument, he breaks the first room apart from the second room and calls them the outer and the inner tabernacle. And his first object is just to give a basic description. 
Description number one is of the outer tabernacle. Look back at verse two. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. So if you were to enter in the initial curtain to come into the first room in that tabernacle, you would enter into the room they called the holy place. This is the outer tabernacle. And inside that room were a few basic pieces of furniture that God himself, as you remember, gave to Moses on the mountain. God prescribed what pieces of furniture were supposed to be in that first room. Specifically, we know there were three pieces of furniture in the first room. The author mentions two of them here. He'll mention the third in a moment. They are the lampstand. The lampstand basically picture a beautiful golden menorah that if, when you enter into that room, it would have been on the left side of the room. So a menorah that would have held uh, seven candles uh, made completely of gold. We see this prescribed in Exodus 25, verses 31 to 32. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from its one side, and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. That's the lampstand. On the other side of the room, on your right, would be the second piece of furniture, which we'll call the table. And the table was there to hold the, the showbread, the bread of the presence. This was a special bread that was to be made by the priest weekly. It was replaced on the Sabbath day each week. And the priests were given permission to eat this bread. They had to eat it in a holy place. You had to be a priest to eat it, but it could be eaten. We see this in Exodus 25. Uh, verses 23 to 25. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long. By the way, a cubit is about 18 inches. So if you're a math person, you can kind of visualize the length of this table. It's two cubits long, one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make for it a rim of a hand breadth around it and you shall make a golden border for the rim around it. Verse 30, it says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. That's the second piece of furniture. The third piece of furniture, he's gonna mention in a moment, but I'm gonna go ahead and mention it here. This is called the altar of incense. And when you walked into that first room of the tabernacle, if you look straight ahead, there would have been a veil blocking your view from the, the Holy of Holies. And there in front of that veil would be this altar of incense. And we see this in Exodus 30, verses one to three. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of a kale wood. Its length shall be a cubit and its width a cubit. It shall be square and its height shall be two cubits. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with pure gold. All of these items are overlaid with gold. Its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around for it. Then look at Exodus 30, verses six to eight, and we see the placement of this incense altar. This will be important in a moment. He says, you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that's over the ark of the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. 
There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So what we see is the command for each of these items to be built and their placement. And we see here with the altar of incense that Aaron and the other priests were to come in every morning and every evening and light incense on that incense altar. So this is the first room, the outer tabernacle. But now he brings us to the second. The second description we'll call the inner tabernacle. This is the most sacred portion of the tabernacle. Look back at verse three. He says, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. So as you enter into this first outer room, picture in front of you this beautiful uh, decorative veil that's blocking your view into the next room. On the other side of that room is what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. You know this, this is a famous room in the temple and in this tabernacle. It's in this room specifically that God would set his presence. It's in this room that he would manifest his presence on earth during the old covenant. And it was the closest that a person could get to the presence of God. In fact, today, if you go to Israel, the Jews go underneath the temple mount trying to get to the, the foundation stones of the temple because they're getting as close as they can get to where the Holy of Holies used to sit. This was the holy place. Now the first piece of, piece of furniture that the author mentions here has caused a lot of consternation amongst commentators. If you have an interest and you wanna read about it, the commentators are all abuzz about this issue because notice what the first piece of furniture is that he mentions for this room. Verse four, talking about the Holy of Holies, he says, having a golden altar of incense. Now, why is that a problem? Well, I just described to you, where did the altar of incense sit? It's set at the far end of the first room, right? Right in front of the veil is where God told Moses to put it. But the author here seems to mention it as being inside the Holy of Holies. And this has caused a lot of, of stir. But I don't think it's really that complicated to understand. First of all, the, the author has proven himself throughout Hebrews to be a master of the Old Testament. Has he not? He's quoted to us and exposited to us passage after passage from the Old Testament. This man knows what he's talking about and he wouldn't make a mistake uh, in, in this way to just forget and, and sort of men, have a mental fog in which he forgets and puts this piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. So what's this all about if this is not a mistake? Well, the author is really drawing our attention to the special significance of the altar of incense. The altar of incense, as we're gonna see, really functioned as a piece of furniture that was a bridge between the holy place and the most holy place. Because every day they would light the incense on that altar and that smoke would rise up from the altar and fill not only the initial room, but it would go under the veil into the holy of holies. And more importantly than that, what I really think is happening here is the author is picturing that one special day of the year, the Day of Atonement. That's what's in his mind. Because something happened on the Day of Atonement that didn't happen any other day in regards to this altar of incense. Listen to Leviticus 16, verses 12 and 13. This is on the Day of Atonement to Aaron. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar. That's this altar 
and, and before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that's on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Now in this way, the altar of incense could be said to, to really sit in both rooms in different ways because of the way it functioned. Yes, the piece of furniture sat there at the end of the first room, but daily its smoke would enter into the second. And once a year, the, the items, the, the coals from that altar were said to be brought into the veil. And I think he's really talking about the function of the altar more than he's talking about its location. But that's all we need to say on that issue, but you will see it if you read on it, so I wanted to mention it. But in addition to that, now we come to that piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies that is the most famous piece of furniture under the Old Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Look back at the passage, verse four, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. Exodus 25, verses 10 and 11 describe this Ark he says, they shall construct an ark of Achaia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out and shall overlay it and, or you shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. Now, of all the other pieces of furniture, as you know, the Ark of the Covenant was the, the physical representation that the true God, Yahweh, was residing with the people of Israel. It was just a symbol, it was just a, a box at the end of the day, but it was a box that God had set apart for a sec sacred purpose. And therefore, like the other pieces of furniture, it was covered in gold. And inside the ark were kept some very important uh, articles from Israel's history, articles that prove that Yahweh was the one true God and that he had provided for his people during their time in the wilderness. Look back again at verse four. He says, having a golden altar of incense and an ark uh, of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. These three sacred items, they were commanded to take some of that manna because other generations would forget what God had done and they, they, they had a jar of that manna for, for future generations. Remember there was one time where the people rebelled against Moses and Aaron and so God made it clear that he had chosen Aaron and Moses by making Aaron's staff uh, bud with, with ripe um, almonds, that staff was to be kept as a memorial of that day. And then you had the tables of the covenant. This, these are the stone uh, tablets that God wrote the law on when he gave to Moses. And these things were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, again, there is some controversy here because initially only the stone tablets were said by God to be kept inside the Ark. The other two were said to be displayed in front of the Ark. But as you remember, the ark and the tabernacle were made to be movable pieces of furniture. They would carry these around the wilderness until the temple was ultimately built under Solomon's reign. And so it's not unlikely at all. In fact, it's probable that for, for moving purposes, they would put the other items inside the ark to keep them safe and move them from place to place. And so it's not wrong to refer to them being inside the ark. 
But if you know anything about the Ark of the Covenant, then you know that the lid made for the Ark was a very, very sacred piece of furniture. And this is what he describes next. He says here in verse five, and above it, that is above the Ark, were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now this is this lid that was placed on top of the ark. It was also covered with gold and it had these, these powerful angels depicted, cherubim they're called. These were powerful angels with wings extended forward as if they're bowing down before the majesty of Yahweh. This seat is described in Exodus 25 verses 21 and 22. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I gave to you. There I will meet with you. Now that's important. This was the sacred place, the most sacred place under the old covenant. It's there above the mercy seat, above the cherubim that I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. This is why when you read through the Old Testament, God the Father is often depicted as being seated or enthroned above the cherubim. What's he talking about? It's a mental image of, of this passage here above the mercy seat, the place where God said he would put his abiding presence. Remember also, as I was studying about the cherubim here, I was reminded that it was cherubim along with a sword that were put outside the garden. On the day when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, God placed cherubim there to keep them from re-entering the garden. And so that symbolism plays into part of the symbolism of the cherubim on the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant because they symbolize two things. One, the holiness and majesty of God. You have these two beautiful, powerful angels bowing down to God because he is the exalted one. But also, it's a reminder to us that the cherubim guard the holy presence of God and we may not enter it. We are not welcome because of our sin. And so it's a reminder in the same way that the cherubim stood guard at the garden, they stood guard there over the mighty presence of God, the holy presence of God that we as sinful men and women cannot in our own merit enter into that presence. Now, if you're a visual learner, we're gonna put an image up real quick on the screen. Uh, if you're in the far back, you may not be able to see this, but just to put all this together, I know I gave a lot of descriptions. This is the tabernacle, it's a rendering of that. You can see the first room that you would enter and the three pieces of furniture and then the veil and the ark in the Holy of Holies in the back. There's also a front courtyard that he doesn't mention because the courtyard's not really part of the symbolism he's wanting to focus in on. But this is what the tabernacle may have looked like, something along these lines. Really a very simple design when you look at it all together, but a design that has great significance. Now, as I mentioned, he closes out verse five with these words, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, we could go on and on and on about each of these pieces of furniture and symbolism and things like that, but to do that would be to betray the purpose of this passage. So we're gonna do what the author does. We're gonna move ahead. We're gonna get to the point. The point of all of this is there's a message. 
This description of the tabernacle is all a designed message from God to us to tell us something very, very significant. So now we're going to segment number two, verses six to 10, the message of the earthly tabernacle. He opens in verse six by saying, now when these things have been so prepared, or in other, other words, when the tabernacle's set up and everything's set up in its place and ready to go, something happens. And what he's gonna describe now for us is not just a description of the pieces within the tabernacle, but the function. There's something about the way the tabernacle function that stands as a lasting message to you and I. And that's gonna be the point here. So first of all, look at the function of the outer tabernacle. The outer tabernacle. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Now, this is important. First of all, not just anyone could enter even this first room of the tabernacle. You had to be a priest, which meant you had to be from the line of Levi, a male from the line, line of Levi. But if you were, then you had access to this first room. And at this point, this is where the, the daily ministry of worship took place. It was that these priests would come in and out of that first outer tabernacle with some frequency, certainly at least twice a day in the morning and in the evening as they were to light the incense on the altar. But the key word here for the comparison is the word continually. They were continually coming in and out of this outer room. That's gonna be the key difference between this room and the next. The heart of the argument has to do with the frequency with which these rooms are entered. And so th though this first room had continual access by the priests, not so with the second room, as you already know. And this is function number two, the inner tabernacle, the function of the inner tabernacle. Look back now at verse seven but into the second, that is the second room, only the high priest enters. Into the second, only the high priest enters. Unlike the outer tabernacle, that outer room, which could be entered by any legitimate priest, the holy of holies was only accessible by one man, the high priest. And remember, the high priest was not only a Levite, but he was from the direct line of Aaron. It was passed down by blood. And so this is a, a, special, a special role really chosen by God. You have no, no uh, control over how you're born or who you're born, what bloodline you're born in. And so this, this person was born, it was passed down from, from son to son, but only that one person had the privilege and the weighty responsibility of entering into this second room, the Holy of Holies. But it's even more exclusive than that because even this special person who's born by, by God's choice, by birth to be the high priest, even he doesn't have continual access to the Holy of Holies because listen to what he says next. Not only is it the high priest who enters once a year, but it said, or who enters, but he only enters once a year. That's it. He can go into that outer room like the other priests going in at least twice a day, but into the inner room, even he only gets to go one day a year. That day, of course, as we study, is the day of atonement in Leviticus 16. But his access is limited even further. Not only could one man go on one day a year, 
but he couldn't go empty-handed because it says he enters once a year, not without taking blood. Not without taking blood. Now picture this, here is this man, this privileged man, perhaps the most privileged man in all of Israel who gets to go into the holy place, but he dare not enter that place without trembling hands extended, carrying a bowl of sacrificial blood. This is as limited access as possible to the very presence of God. It's a visible symbol that even this man, though he's been chosen for this role, may not enter on his own merit. He is not worthy to enter into the presence of God. The reason for that is because at the end of the day, even though he has this exalted position, he's in the same predicament as everybody else, which is the predicament of sin. And because of his sin, he enters with hands extended carrying this bowl of blood. In fact, on the day of atonement, he was to enter into the Holy of Holies not once, but twice. And there's symbolism even in this. Because his reason for entering the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement was to make atonement for the sins of the entire congregation of the people for the sins they had committed that year. But the problem was he wasn't worthy to do that. And so he entered the first time into the tabernacle, not for their sins, but for his. It was prescribed that he would sacrifice a bull and bring the blood of that bull into the Holy of Holies the first time to pay for or atone for his sins and the sins of his family. Then he would exit the Holy of Holies, come out and sacrifice a goat that was to be for the sins of the people. And then he would take that blood in and then and only then make an offering of atonement for them. We see this outlined in Leviticus 16, verses 11 to 15. Notice the two entrances. The first is in verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Notice the emphasis. Then he shall take a fire pan full of coals. We read this earlier of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, bring it inside the veil and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that's on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise he will die. Now listen to that. If he doesn't do this the right way, he will die, God says. Verse 14, moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. Verse 15 is the second sacrifice. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. This is the prescribed way in which this one man once a year was to enter into that most holy place. The author makes it clear that he's doing this first of all for his own sin in verse seven. Not only does he enter once a year, not without offering blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now there's so much more that we could say about all of these things. Each of these really could have a, a whole series as we talk about the day of atonement and the role of the high priest. 
But the question is, what's been the motivation here in Hebrews? Why has the author labored to remind us of these things, especially for the Jewish people? Many of you already knew these details, but they certainly already knew these details. So what is the point? Why, why is he belaboring this point? I know we've covered a lot of ground, and in these first several verses, there, there's not been initial uh, direct application for us, but that's, in pur- that's on purpose. He's, he's building towards something with all of these details, and it's crescendoing to this moment. He wants us to understand that all of this, which would have been so familiar to them, has, has had this message that's been hiding under their nose the whole time. This great message that the Holy Spirit has revealed to him. And it's here in verse eight that he gets to the point. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. That is to say, there is a mystery here. Remember the mystery in the the New Testament refers to something that was previously unknown, but God has revealed it now by divine revelation. The author is saying, the Holy Spirit has revealed to me now that there's a significant message here in the way the tabernacle functions. And really there are two grand conclusions, two messages that we'll see, and this ultimately is the point. Message number one in simple terms is this. A better way to God is needed. A better way to God is needed. Verse eight, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. The way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. The holy place here must be the holy of holies. And though it would make logical sense that you enter into that outer tabernacle, the first room, to go into the second, that's not true because you entered into the first only to be blocked by a massive veil saying you may go no further. So the outer tabernacle actually wasn't the way in. And what he's saying is as long as that's there, as long as that outer tabernacle is still daily functioning for the worship of the people, The Holy Spirit's saying the true way into the Holy of Holies, not for one man once a year carrying blood, but for all men has not yet been revealed. What men have been desiring when they think rightly is a renewal of fellowship with God himself. Since the fall, since Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, mankind has been longing for a way back Not back to the garden specifically, but back to the God of the garden. How do we walk with him again? How do we have fellowship with him again? Adam and Eve had no idea what they were giving up and sacrificing until it was gone. They had no idea the privilege that they had to walk with God in his literal presence in the garden until it was taken from them. And since the garden, we've been looking for this way back into that presence of God. And it may have seemed initially as if the tabernacle was the answer. Here it is. God's put his presence back on the earth here in the Holy of Holies. And this must be the way that we again re-engage with God. And certainly under the old covenant, it was the prescribed way that the people were to come to God. But upon further inspection, the author says, the Holy Spirit's revealed that what we find in the tabernacle was really not a means to access to the presence of God, but a vivid reminder that access to God's presence is still blocked. That we can't get in. That we don't have the right to fellowship with God. 
So much so that the real presence of God, while the ministry of the tabernacle was going on, the, the real presence of God was always veiled, always kept in a back room where nobody could go except one man once a year. The real presence of God is off limits. When you as a priest walked into that first room and you saw that veil in the back of the room, the message that was supposed to hit your head is you can't come into my presence. You're not welcome here. And the Holy Spirit has now been inspired to reveal to us the purpose of the outer tabernacle is like a screaming message from God to say a better way is needed and a better way is coming. A better entry point is coming. And now that Christ and the new covenant have come, the tabernacle, he says, stands as a picture for us. Look back at the passage, verse nine, which is a symbol for the present time. Now that, that outer tabernacle, which was ultimately blocking the way to the real presence of God, stands as a permanent symbol for us. That is to say, now that we have Christ and the new covenant and this new revelation of God, we're able to comprehend the divinely intended message of the tabernacle. Previously, if you think about it, the insinuation to a Jewish person that the tabernacle was insufficient or that it wasn't the real way to access the presence of God would have been blasphemy. It would have been, it would have been unthinkable. Uh, they would have said, what do you mean a better way is needed? God gave this way to Moses on the mountain. This is the way. What other way are you talking about? But now that Christ has been revealed, we can see clearly the design of the tabernacle, everything about it, the way that it functioned, even the things within it were pointing to the coming of another one, another way. And the reason that the outer tabernacle could never truly be adequate to bring us into the presence of God is now explained to us through the second message of the tabernacle. Message number two is a better sacrifice for sin is needed. Not only a better way, but a better sacrifice for sin. He, he says in verse nine, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Think about that. Gifts and sacrifices are offered under that old covenant system, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Daily and annual sacrifices were prescribed to be brought under the old covenant, and yet those sacrifices never granted access to the people to the Holy of Holies. They never made it in on the basis of those sacrifices. The veil continued to stand. It continued to block the presence of God. So even though the, these sacrifices were constantly being made and regularly being offered, it really didn't grant them access again to reconciliation in the truest way and personal access to God. And to make matters worse, the people knew that even with all their sacrifices, inside, in their conscience, they constantly knew we're unworthy. It didn't work. No matter how many lambs I bring, no matter how many goats, how many doves, how many bulls, I can't cleanse my conscience. There's not enough animal blood on the planet to wipe away the guilt that I feel in my conscience, is what it's saying. Again, this goes back to the garden, this sense of shame, this sense of, of an inner knowledge in the conscience that I am unworthy 
Think back to the garden. What happened on that day when our forefathers sinned? Genesis chapter three, verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I want you to think about this scene in the garden from the lens of what we just read in Hebrews about this lack of a truly cleansed conscience. No one had to tell Adam and Eve to feel guilty. They, the consequences of their sin immediately were felt in the conscience. A deep sense of shame overcame them. They didn't realize the perfect inner bliss that they had experienced of a clean conscience their whole life until it was gone. That's the thing about innocence. You don't know the value of it until you've lost it. And once their eyes were opened to the knowledge of good and evil, they recognized their physical nakedness and it brought a new sense, a, a terrible sense of shame. I've got to cover this. And, but here's the thing, they engineered a way to cover their physical nakedness. They sewed leaves together, they covered themselves, and yet still when God comes to visit, what do they do? They hide. But why did they hide if they had found a way to cover the, the source of their shame by covering their bodies? It's because that was not the deep source of their shame. The source of their shame was a burning guilty conscience. I have sinned against God and I'm unworthy. And so they hid. And what we learn now from the book of Hebrews is that even under the old covenant, with all the prescribed sacrifices and all the pomp and circumstances, those people came to that day, a wonderful day of celebration on the day of atonement, a national gathering of all the people to offer atonement for sin, for all the sins of the year. And they walked home with a guilty conscience. It didn't work. I, I still feel that I should hide. I still feel that I'm not worthy. And everything about this system tells me I don't deserve to enter into the presence of God. Why is that? Why didn't it work? Well, he finishes in chapter 10 and tells us why it didn't work. Here's why it didn't perf perfectly cleanse their conscience. Verse 10, since they relate those offerings they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Just like Adam and Eve couldn't get rid of their real shame by covering their physical nakedness, a, a worshiper can't get rid of the, 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 the shame in their conscience by doing outward religious activities. You can wash yourself whichever way you want to and it will not make you clean inside. And that's what they found. These were external things but they were here, notice the last line of verse 10, until a time of reformation. A time was coming in the mind of God. All along, a time was coming 
of reformation, when the cleansing would go beyond the external, when the cleansing would finally be what we've longed for since we lost it in the garden, God would make a way. A time of reformation was needed and a time of reformation was on the way. Only then, under the benefits of the new covenant, could an atonement be made in which man is truly reconciled to God inwardly, outwardly, in every way that we can live with a clean conscience, not because we have done it, but because Christ has done it. And so now we see the message of the tabernacle. As long as the physical tabernacle stood, as long as that was the place of worship, that outer room just reminded us that we couldn't enter. But now that the new covenant has come, there's great, great hope. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're like one of those Jewish people under the old covenant. Maybe you're here because the truth is inside you do long to be near to God. You long to, to know God and to be right with him. And, but what you found is the harder you try, the more religious activities that you do, the more things you try to do to present to God to show that you really love him and that you're really worthy, the more sinful you feel on the inside, the more you realize I, it's not working. I, I still feel this weight of sin. Are you here this morning weary and worn by your sin? Have you come to realize that your efforts of making yourself worthy are useless? Then understand the author of Hebrews has such good news for us. Because in telling us the news of the old covenant that a better way is needed, he's also hinting at the fact that under the new covenant, the better way has come. It has arrived in the person, in the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to focus on something from this passage. If, if you're here and you're burdened under the weight of your sin and you're wondering how can it really be washed clean, I want you to see that God has given us a picture, a symbol, a miracle really to show us that the way has been made through Christ. He's affirmed it. Yes, he's affirmed it chiefly in the resurrection and that miracle. He's affirmed it in the ascension of the son to the right hand of the father. But even before Jesus rose from the dead, on the very day of his death, the father affirmed that the way had been made through his son. You remember that curtain? That curtain that forever stood there at the back of that room, the curtain that all the priests walked into and had to stare at and had to leave realizing I don't ever get to go back there. Even the high priest who got to go, I don't think he was all that excited about it. Remember, it was saying, if you don't do it exactly right, you're gonna die. I've gotta carry trembling blood in and making sure that I'm doing this the right way. Well, listen to what happened to that curtain when Jesus died on the cross. Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now don't miss the significance of what happened here. And don't miss the, the grandeur of what happened here. Historians such as Josephus tell us that in Herod's temple, which would have been the temple at that time, that the, the, the height of the temple was 40 cubits, that's 60 feet. And that veil would have stretched from floor to ceiling all across that temple. 
So a 60-foot curtain suddenly, instantly, a miracle of God is torn from top to bottom. Unmistakably, a divine miracle from God to say, it's done. The way in has now been opened. The veil has been forever torn because my son has purchased the way. He is the better way and it can never be undone. Oh, they could sew up the veil and they could put it back in place, but God had already done it. He had made the way into his real presence, real reconciliation, forever reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus would say to his disciples on the night before his death, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the father testified that that was true on the very moment of his death when he ripped that curtain from top to bottom. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're dying under the weight of your sin, you're desperate for something to change, understand it's not what you can do that will change that. It's what Jesus Christ has already done. He is the way into the presence of God. He is the way into reconciliation with God because he lived the life you couldn't live. He offered his life as a sacrifice on the cross and then God raised him from the dead, proving that he really had accepted his sacrifice as the son of God and brought him to his right hand. The Bible says if you'll repent of your sins, turning from your sins in faith in Jesus Christ alone, that he can save you because of what he has done, then you will be saved. Then you can enter into the real way and your conscience can be truly forever cleansed because of what he has done. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the new covenant. This is what all that symbolism that we went through, all those details, they ultimately point to this. The old covenant says a better way is needed. The new covenant say that better way has come in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. Christians, we need to rally around these truths. We need to, to respond to these things and respond in, in familiar ways. The, the application this morning is, is really not rocket science. It's not something new. It's continuing to do the things that we've been compelled to do. Number one, meditate on God's plan of redemption. Meditate on God's plan of redemption. This passage reminds us yet again that God has had a plan from the beginning. It stretches back before the world was made. When we see the symbolism in the old covenant, we ought to look at the view of the entire plan of redemption. And I would encourage you this week to think on the plan of redemption. Go back to the garden, go back to the fall, go back to the promise in Genesis 3.15 of a redeemer. And then look at how God pointed to Jesus being that redeemer, even through the way the tabernacle functioned all the way to the coming of Christ and his life and death and resurrection. Meditate on the plan of redemption. But also secondly, meditate on the God of redemption. What does it say about the character of God that we have the privilege to enter into his presence? What does it say about the character of God that he didn't just say, I'm done with you the moment that we sin? Why didn't he just wipe Adam and Eve off, off the planet and start over again? because he wanted to reveal himself as the redeeming God. He wanted us to see who he is and he wanted to bring us to himself. He's a saving God by nature. Think on the tabernacle, think on the holy of holies, think on the veil that was torn when Christ was sacrificed and meditate on what does this reveal about the grandeur and glory of our God. And then thirdly, draw near to God through Christ. Christian, draw near to God through Christ. 
This will be the ultimate application that the author will, author will bring us to in, in chapter 10. The fact that God has made a way for us to have fellowship with, with him. Look at what God has done so that we can know him, so that we can walk with him, so that we can cherish his word and understand it and, and walk in obedience to it. Look what he's done, Christian, to make a way for you to, to come to him daily in prayer, to spend time with the God who has saved you. Why would we neglect the privilege to enter into this, this great gift of knowing God? It's so easy for us to take it for granted. You know, we busy ourselves with such lesser things, don't we? Oh, we'll be sure to make sure we don't miss our exercise plan or our diet plan, or we'll make sure that we get our chores done on time around the house, or we'll make sure to block off enough time for me time to recoup and relax, and we'll make sure that we pursue our careers with vigor and, and our hobbies. But how often do we put our pursuit of God at the bottom of the list? Maybe when it's all done, there's a lot to do today, Maybe when I take some time for myself, I've been very busy, the Lord will understand. Christian, what are we doing? When we are the privileged people of God, we have the way to God, not just in salvation, but to know God and to enjoy him forever. It's been given to us in the person of his son. May we arrange our lives as Christians around knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ until he brings us home and we know him face to face. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that you have made the way, certainly in salvation, but more than that, for eternal rescue, to be with you forever, that we might bask in the glories of our Savior, that one day we may see you face to face, and there we will fellowship with you forever. Help us not to take these things for granted. God, help us not to allow the difficulties and trials of life to steal our joy in Christ because take everything else away, but give me Jesus and I have more than enough. May this be our true perspective. May, our, may it show up in the efforts and the way we live our lives that we would organize our lives around knowing, loving, and serving you. God, we love you and we thank you for the way that you've made a way for us in your son. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.